Would you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. The wisdom of following Christ. The truth is a tricky thing. In general, we go about our lives daily making decisions based on what we believe to be true. Things like hard work leads to a fruitful life, or a healthy lifestyle improves our chances of being more active later in life, or participating in illegal activities will eventually catch up with you and you will pay a penalty. These kinds of truths are cause and effect beliefs about how the world works. And when the expected results happen, our beliefs are reinforced. But when something unexpected happens, we reevaluate our belief systems and reconsider what we think is true. And when another person's behaviors appear to be foolish, yet their efforts result in success, whatever you count that to be, that person suddenly seems to be considered wise. Something like this happened in financial markets in the early 2000s. In his book, The Big Short by Michael Lewis, he explains how a group of investors who were considered foolish by the financial industry ended up taking huge profits during the collapse of the housing market in 2007 and 2008. Early in the 2000s, the housing market was booming. Financial institutions were making lots of money in real estate ventures and products known as collateral debt obligations. And investing in these instruments was considered a no-brainer. However, there was a small group of investors who saw the risks in this business. And they predicted that the real estate industry was a bubble that was about to burst. So they developed an investment plan called a credit default swap that essentially made money on housing loans that defaulted. The big banks, the big bank investors thought of the credit default swap people as they were foolish, and they gladly took their money as the credit default swap market started to take off. But when the housing market crashed, those who bought into the credit default swap investments were suddenly considered financially wise. What was once considered foolish was later considered wise. This morning's passage from 1 Corinthians predicts the same kind of turn of events for the Christians in their community. In last week's reflection on an earlier portion of this letter, it was noted that those who cannot see beyond the cross, who believe that the death of Jesus on the cross was the end of his story, thought that Jesus' efforts were foolish. He had challenged the authorities and built a large following but this only got him executed in the most humiliating way of the time. The faith tradition born out of Jesus's teachings even used the symbol of the cross as a source of identity and inspiration. How odd that must have seemed, using a means of brutal execution as a symbol of your faith. But the cross has become the universal symbol of the Christian faith because that is precisely at the point when the truth of Jesus' story is revealed. Those who can see beyond the cross know that Jesus' story did not end with his execution. 
After three days, Jesus arose from the dead and then ascended to heaven where he continues to live at the right hand of God. For the Jews who didn't witness the resurrection or acknowledge the miracles that Jesus had performed, the cross was a stumbling block that they could not get past. And for the Greeks who cherished logic, only the path to the cross was perceptible because the full path through the, through the cross back to God didn't make any sense. Paul points out that the logic of this world cannot explain the truth of the cross, nor the truth of God's wisdom. Consider the Beatitudes, which Gail read for us early from the Gospel of Matthew. The irony of those statements has been pondered, discussed, and written about for thousands of years. But they still have a way of inspiring a new way of looking at the world when we read them again and again. While the rest of the world strives to find ways to be rich and happy and proud, Jesus taught us that as the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and the meek who will inherit the greatest rewards. It's the people who can't be comfortable in the midst of injustice and who are willing to use their power or privilege to offer mercy to others who will be most satisfied in life. Jesus taught his disciples to strive to be pure in heart and facilitators of peace at all costs, no matter what the consequences, because the rewards in heaven are worth it. Although following the teachings of Christ may not lead to a plush, comfortable lifestyle or existence, Jesus assures us that the rewards in heaven far outweigh the costs of living the way of life that leads the, our normal society leads toward. This brings up an interesting story about the Apostle Paul and his ministry in India after the ascension of Jesus. It comes from a writing known as the Acts of Thomas, which is thought to have been written around the second century. According to this document, the apostles divided up the world into regions and drew lots to discern which apostle would serve in which region. After Jesus had given them the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel, Thomas received the assignment to go to India. But he objected because he felt that he wouldn't be able to communicate with anybody there. They didn't speak Hebrew and he didn't speak any of their languages, so he wouldn't be able to be productive at all. As the other apostles were praying about this situation and trying to convince Thomas to go to, in, to India. An emissary from an Indian king named Gundaforas came to Jerusalem in search of a master builder who had helped build the king a new palace. Since Thomas had learned carpentry from Jesus and had the skills to oversee the construction of the palace, he agreed to go back to India with the emissary and build the palace. And when he arrived, Thomas was disturbed by the extent of the poverty that he saw there, especially compared to the rich lifestyle of those who were wealthy. So when the king sent him money to fund the construction project, Thomas gave the money to the poor rather than build the palace as requested by the king. One day, though, the king decided to visit Thomas just to get a glimpse of his new palace, how it was coming along. 
Yes, oops. When he arrived and asked to see how the construction was going, he was told he, he couldn't see it yet because it was being built in heaven rather than earth. That did not go over well. The money given to Thomas was used to alleviate hunger and suffering, which was valuable work in the realm of heaven, but it was not helpful for building a palace. <laughs> Outraged, the king immediately threw Thomas into prison. But that night, the king's brother died and went to heaven. And when he saw the glorious palace that Thomas had built for his brother, the king, he begged for a chance to go back and warn him and tell his brother what was taking place in heaven on his behalf. And he was allowed to go back and contact the king, perhaps in a dream. When the king received his brother's message, he, re he released Thomas and became a Christian follower after that. In that story of the Acts of Thomas, we see a new way of looking at ministry in the world and through India. Although we can't buy our way to heaven, we know that, or earn our way there through righteous works, we can accept the gifts of grace and salvation from Christ and following the teachings of Jesus as a means of opening our hearts and minds. Heaven is not something to be achieved, or, but a gift to be accepted. When we look beyond the cross to the truth of Christ, we gain trust in the truth of Jesus' teachings as well. And although they may not always make sense by the standards of this world, they bear a truth that resonates with our soul deep in our heart. We know that the path that Jesus has shown us is the right path. This is the path described by the prophet Micah, which we also heard from earlier today, this morning. Micah announced to Israel that God is not interested in the objects that we treasure here on earth, at least not in the same way that we do. Rather than worry about the material value of those offerings or the amount of suffering endured to make them worthy, God really wants three things from us. To do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. The teachings given to us by Jesus fulfill all these requirements, and they do much, much more. They offer us insight into how to walk humbly with God <coughs> and how to do that walk on a daily basis. Even when our decisions don't make sense to those who can't see Jesus beyond the cross, Christ's teachings help us to build a stronger relationship with God and to guide us as we work towards building an awareness of the kingdom of God here on this earth. <coughs> Excuse me. I used my cup for hot water this morning. <laughs> this morning, I invite you to reflect on Christ as you make a decision to support the work of the church. The work of this church, the First United Methodist Church of Yuma, as well as the work in the Desert Southwest Annual Conference of the United Methodist Church, and the global United Methodist Church, including the Holy Universal Church that all seeks to make disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world. Your commitment will not make you more comfortable or wealthier. 
nor will it guarantee to you a palace in heaven. But it will give you an opportunity to be part of an expression of Christ here in this world, to be the hands and feet that serve God and neighbor. And that, as you have heard and seen, is priceless. Have you seen through, as you have seen through the stewardship moments over the last few weeks from Debbie Pollack and Dave Cridlin, Cheryl and Nate Clifton, and this morning from Fred Hansowitz, being a part of the church can have consequences that are immeasurably valuable. This year, we're going to do something that's a little bit different than we've done before, but it has been done in the church in the past. We're going to invite you to make a decision about your financial pledge to the church, but it will be a private affair known only between you and God. When you have made your decision, I invite you to come forward and drop your pledge in this box at the front of the sanctuary. Neither me nor any of the lay leadership will read your pledge. It will only be between you and God. And just as you trust that God will help you make your life successful in the world. We trust that the church will be made successful in its ministries through the work of Christ going through us. We will keep this box here under the worship table throughout the year as a reminder of your promise, but also as an opportunity as you need it. If you feel called to adjust your commitment at any time during the year, whether because of unexpected expenses or unexpected income, you're welcome to write something, a, a new note to write something different, a different pledge card and place it in the box. Also, if you decide to make a commitment to serve in a special way, you are invited to come forward and write it on a note and put it in the box. Yes, God knows what's on our hearts and God hears our prayers but this pledge box will allow you to collect your thoughts, make a decision that you feel ready to commit to, and physically express that decision privately by putting it in writing and placing it in this box. At any time throughout the year, you can come in during the week, on the weekend, on Sunday, anytime, and put whatever you would like as a commitment in this pledge box. So I now invite you to consider your pledge this year and what you would like to commit for the church and place it in this box.